Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night, and that is the time when we talk about science. So let us get started tonight with um, something that's kind of a fun fact, kind of sad, um, but a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Um, so this actually kind of blew my mind. I had never heard of such a thing until I read about it yesterday. So apparently narwhals, which are the amazing, uh, unicorns of the sea, uh, and beluga whales, which are the beautiful sort of off white whales that live in the Arctic and are super smart. Um, they apparently can interbreed and produce offspring nicknamed Narluga. And so a specimen was caught in Greenland, and it has an unusually large head, and several of the teeth, while positioned like those of a beluga, were actually um, shaped more like narwhal tusks. Um, and so the belugas, they generally have flat kind of peg-like teeth, but these were much more rounded and much more pointed. Now, of course, again, as I noted, this would be a delightful tidbit, uh, except for the fact that it does have a darker underside. And so it turns out that hybrids of several aquatic species, um, as well as others, are becoming more common as climate change forces animals to move into new territories. And so a 2010 study published in Nature listed 34 confirmed and suspected hybrid hybrids caused by climate change in the Arctic and near Arctic. Um, and that was just for marine mammals. And so the authors of the study note that the issues with such hybridization include that as more isolated populations and species come into contact, they will mate, hybrids will form, and rare species are likely to go extinct. As the genomes of species become mixed, adaptive gene combinations will be lost. And so that's a big deal. Um, and in one of the articles I was reading about this, they compared it to the idea of humans and Neanderthals. And so we're pretty sure that Neanderthals, we know for certain, actually, uh, that Neanderthals and humans interbred. And um, unfortunately, for some reason that there's many, you know, it could be a combination of reasons. Um, you know, Neanderthals, unfortunately, did not survive and um, continue as a species. They were um, subsumed and uh, outcompeted by uh, what we consider now modern humans. And so the authors of that uh, study suggest that urgent action is needed to preserve the unique species found in the Arctic. And of course, one of the other examples of this that you might know about that's been more widely uh, publicized is the hybrids that um, are called either pizzlies or growler bears. Um, and those are crosses between polar bears and grizzlies. And so now this might not seem like a huge issue because they are actually pretty closely related, but researchers worry that hybridization will assume the genes of polar bears into a less well-adapted species. 
For example, for for instance, a pizzly bear in a German zoo has shown seal hunting tendencies, but was unable to swim as well as a normal polar bear in order to be able to uh, complete such a hunt. So even though it was interested in hunting the seals, it wasn't able to actually have the energy and strength in order to do that. And so if you end up with bears that are like that, that can be really problematic as far as um, their survival. And so, yeah, not a good thing. But I did actually catch this uh, tidbit that is kind of a good thing. Um, so I figured we could wrap up that story with a bit of unrelated but still good news. Um, so... You may know, um, <laughs> if you have been, um, alive in the last few months that, um, this country is going through a bit of a, um, rough patch. Let's put it that way. We're going through a rough patch. And among the other problems is that people who, uh, don't believe in government are in charge of it. And that has been very true in some of the government agencies, such as the EPA and the Department of Energy and so many other things. But anyways, um, apparently one thing that was on the chopping block potentially were, uh, the five U.S. energy innovation hubs. Uh, they had been marked for elimination, but it turns out that after some uh, strongly worded uh, commentary from some senators, it seems to be back on the uh, funded list. And so that's pretty exciting. So the hubs were created during the Obama administration not shockingly. Um, and each one looks at one major energy related goal. So those are artificial photosynthesis, battery technology, new materials, nuclear reactor simulations, and energy efficient seawater desalination. So that is a good thing. Um, and I know that some people might not like the idea of nuclear reactor simulations, but I think that uh, though it has its drawbacks and they do tend to feel very dramatic when it happens, I am still someone who believes that safe and effective nuclear energy is a environmentally sound idea and that the amount of people who have been killed or hurt by uh, nuclear explosions versus those who have been hurt by, oh, I don't know, say the burning of coal, uh, those two do not compare in any way, shape or form. The amount of people uh, killed outright or um, whose diseases were uh, contributed to by coal is astronomically larger than those who have been uh, hurt or been killed in nuclear disasters. And unfortunately, because they are rather more spectacular and they do have some rather large consequences, uh, such as, you know, there is Chernobyl, the area around Chernobyl, obviously it's going to still be uh, uninhabitable for a while. But in the end, I still think that there is an argument to be made that there can be safe and uh, really environmentally okay um, nuclear energy. 
And so there are pros and cons, obviously, but as far as I can see at this point, we don't have enough other alternative energy sources to really take us completely off of coal and gas and oil. Um, but, you know, technology continues to uh, grow, so we'll see what happens in the future. Anyways, let us go on to something fairly completely different. Um, and so you might have seen this lately on your Facebook feed or other internet sources. Um, remember, you can find me on Facebook, uh, Evidence-Based Radio. During the week, I do post a lot of stuff there uh, that will probably almost certainly not make it into the Friday show. Uh, and also things that are more visual, uh, little videos and things like that. Anyways, so this was a, uh, this is a 4,000 year old Mesopotamian artifact and it had been labeled as a spinning toy. And so had therefore, uh, in the last couple of days, especially had been popping up on people's social media as a comparison to modern fidget spinners to sort of say that, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, which while technically true, uh, does not actually apply in this particular case because it turns out that this, uh, so-called, uh, spinning toy turns out to be nothing of the sort. And so curators at the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago, um, were taking a new look at this item, um, and so it had actually been added to the museum's collection about 85 years ago. So it's been there for a while. But they've recently realized that what had been labeled as spinning toy with animal head um, from the Isin Larsa period was in fact not a toy, but rather a mace head. <laughs> and so the clay artifact dates from between 200 and 1800 BC, and it was found in what is now modern day Iraq at a site called Tel Azmar. And so when discovered in 1932, it was recorded as either being a toy or perhaps for some other use. The excavators recognized that the object was unique and they speculated it might be rotated and used in quote-unquote astrological divination, suggesting that the animals represented were a bull, an ibex, and a lion. Kirsten Newman, a curator and research associate at the Oriental Institute, told Live Science in an email. However, more modern research suggests that it is more likely a mace head, though the fact that it is clay is unusual. Most mace heads were actually carved from rock, but the circumstantial evidence is rather robust. That our baked clay that our baked clay example was found in the area of a temple also supports that it is a mace head since there were con since they were considered weapons of the gods in the second century in the second millennium BC she notes again though the original excavators weren't foolish to consider it a toy other examples of baked clay toys such as rattles animal figurines and even wheeled carts have been found in sites from around the area so still a very cool artifact, just not the cool artifact that we thought it was. 
Um, and, you know, that is a great sort of uh, example of how science is a continuing process. And we've got another version of that coming up later on, slightly in the program. And so let us switch gears now and talk about a novel way to treat drug-resistant infections. It's not technically a novel way. It's just not a way that we've actually been exploring very well. And if you have listened to the show before, uh, you will know that infectious diseases are one of my uh, points of true terror. Um, the idea of coming down with something that is uh, antibiotic resistant is something that would keep me up at night if I let things actually keep me up at night. Um, it is my completely rational uh, terror uh, to the point where I don't even enjoy zombie movies that much. <laughs> um, I don't know why I can do uh, vampire movies, which you would think would be just as bad, but I can do those. I can do any kind of other, uh, you know, supernatural beastie kind of movie, werewolves. That's cool. Um, but I can't do zombies. Um, for some reason, that just seems to be the closest to sort of infectious disease run rampant. But anyways, <laughs> uh, scientists have suggested that we've been missing a huge possible mechanism for combating these dangerous illnesses, which is vaccines. And so last month, a group of microbiologists and vaccine developers from both academia and industry got together to talk about this issue in Belgium. Vaccines should be part of the general strategy to combat antimicrobial Antimicrobial resistance, or AMR, said Rhino Rapuoli, chief scientist in GSK's vaccine division, uh, which organized the gathering. And so people are listening. For instance, the Bill and Melinda's, Melinda Gates Foundation has decided to make vaccines its number one priority for antimicrobial resistance. And um, so there have already been successes in the field with this. So, for instance, vaccines for the most prevalent strain of pneumo pneumococcus uh, bacteria developed back in the 2000s have slashed the numbers of both cases of pneumonia, but also the number of infections that show signs of AMR in America. And so similar results were found in South Africa. And even vaccinating against the flu, which, as we all know, is a virus, not a uh, bacterial infection, and thus can't itself be treated with antibiotics, uh, being vaccinated against the flu can actually help combat AMR uh, because it does turn out that complications from the flu can often involve opportunistic bacterial infections, which are then treated with antibiotics. And so reducing the number of flu cases reduces the chance of bacteria being exposed to and gaining resistance from antibiotics. And the real beauty of this approach is that it has a much smaller potential to cause resistance itself. Vaccines are delivered before an infection or disease begins and therefore are not exposed to a large concentration of any form of bacteria. 
Now, obviously, more research is needed to solidify the connection between vaccinations and preventing antimicrobial resistance. But again, the early results seem to indicate that this is a real weapon that can be employed in this fight. And so, for instance, a study published last month in The Lancet notes that after a push for vaccination in New Zealand uh, for uh, meningitis B, or against meningitis B, I should say, uh, after a severe outbreak of that disease in the mid-2000s, seems to have had the beneficial side effect of also protecting people against gonorrhea. And in fact, this is pretty good and exciting because gonorrhea in recent years has become increasingly resistant to antibiotics. And so uh, gonorrhea is actually something that people are looking at very closely because it's becoming really antibiotic resistant. And so something that used to be easily cured with penicillin is now very hard to cure. And so if we could prevent people from getting it with a vaccine, that would make a big difference. And so researchers believe that the side effect in this case, uh, the side effect resistance is caused by the fact that the two bacterial strains uh, are actually related. And so if you're uh, protecting against one, it turned out that you can protect against the other. Now, of course, a hurdle in expanding vaccines is that they are expensive to develop, and therefore a strong case must be mounted for their usefulness. So let's hope that in the coming years, we'll get that evidence and be able to employ a new weapon in the war against antimicrobial resistance. And of course, vaccines are amazing, life-saving tools, and that is a fact that is indisputable and Please, please, please make sure you're caught up on your vaccinations. Make sure your kids, your grandkids, your nieces and nephews are all caught up on their vaccinations. Uh, your dogs and cats. Um, I didn't actually read the article because it was going to make me too sad. But apparently uh, there is a rumor that some uh, people, at least in Brooklyn, are extending their anti-vaccine uh, ideologies to their animals, um, which just seems to be just so incredibly awful to me that like, I really I couldn't even read the article. I'm hoping that it turns out that it's just a few people who are not paying attention to science. Um, but please, vaccinations are always good. Um, and standard disclaimer, not, you know, there are definitely people who have been affected by vaccines. That is absolutely true. But the on a population level, vaccines are pretty much the most important medical uh, breakthrough and medical uh, intervention that we have created as human beings. <laughs> so anyways, let us pivot now and talk about a different kind of tiny organism. Uh, but this is one we can all love. And so researchers reported last week in the journal PLOS Biology, um, which is Public Library of Science, uh, that they have sequenced the DNA of two species of tardigrades. Now, if you haven't heard me or really anyone on the internet talk about tardigrades before, I'll give you a tiny recap. These tiny creatures also called water bears or moss piglets, adorable, are everywhere. 
They live in moist places like moss and even on damp trees and other places like that. And they are amazingly hard to kill. They have the ability to dehydrate their bodies. And once they are dehydrated, they, they're basically indestructible. They have even, uh, been shot into space and were able to survive the vacuum of space. And so once they were rehydrated, they basically returned to their normal life of being water bears. So obviously a lot of researchers are interested in knowing more about how they do these amazing things. And what's cool about this new study is that it builds on the work of a previous study and comes to a different conclusion. So I was talking about that a little bit earlier. Um, and what's what may seem at first glance to be a bad thing is actually what science is built on. People find new information and they change their minds. And in fact, what's even cooler here is that the author of the original study which suggested that tardigrades import about 17% of their genomes from foreign sources through a process called horizontal gene transfer, has actually been convinced by the new study that the percentage is most likely closer to 0.7%, which is actually typical for most animals. And so that's really excellent where you have the uh, previous person really saying, yeah, this totally makes sense. And so um, the co-authors of the new study are evolutionary geneticist Mark Blackster of the University of Edinburgh and molecular biologist Kazuhara Arakawa of Keio University in Kanagawa, Japan. And so the reason their findings are different from those found by tardigrade biologist Bob Goldstein of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and colleagues uh, previously is that they were able to sequence the DNA in a more sophisticated way. And so if you don't know, no genome can actually be sequenced in one complete segment. The genome needs to be sliced up into different segments in order for the whole genome to be deciphered. And so Goldstein's segments, over 16,175 individual pieces, averaged around 13,000 base pairs, whereas the new sequence contained a mere 1,421 sequences that averaged around 73,000 base pairs. And so this allowed for a more precise reading of the tardigrade's genetic makeup. The author's analysis Analysis methods and their methods for getting clean DNA are certainly an improvement over our own earlier methods, noted Goldstein. Now, not everything in this paper is being universally praised, however. The researchers also suggest that the tardigrades are more closely related to nematode worms. And this, however, is controversial because they've traditionally been classed closer to the arthropods, such as spiders, due to the fact that they have segmented bodies and multiple limbs. It's actually been an open question as to just where along the spectrum of seven phyla of molting animals known as ecdysozoans uh, that the tardigrades actually belong. And it seems that this study has not quite convinced a majority of scientists that that answer has yet to be determined. But 
Otherwise, uh, it is a very cool paper and it shows a really great way in which science progresses and in which people can actually change their minds. Because, of course, that is what's important in science is being able to look at new evidence and change your mind and not to simply cling to a certain set of beliefs. So yay for scientists doing good science. <laughs> okay, so let us move on now uh, and talk about a new potential medical adhesive. Um, yeah, these the stories tonight don't have any overarching theme, as you can tell. It's kind of, it's one of those weeks where we just bounce around. Um, but uh, one of the coolest ways to develop new products, in my opinion, is to see how nature has already solved a problem and build from there. Now, this is usually called biomimicry, and it's produced some great inventions, including uh, Velcro, for instance. So researchers at Harvard University's Weiss Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering have developed a potential medical glue inspired by Arion subfuscus, which is a slug. <laughs> so it's a slug that can be found in North America and Western Europe. And so in the wild, the slugs excrete a sticky yellow-orange slime that allows it to adhere to wet surfaces, which is the key property that the researchers wanted to recreate. And so what Jian Yu Li, a postdoctoral researcher and lead author of the study found, was that the slime consists of long polymer chains that are bound to each other um, in a process which is called cross-linking. And what makes this slime unique is that it has two types of cross-link bonds, both ionic and covalent bonds, which allow the slime to be both tough and stretchy. And so the team created an artificial copy of this slime with artificial polymers layered on what is referred to as a dissipative matrix, but is mostly a fancy word for a shock absorber kind of uh, matrix. And so this allows it to stretch and deform without splitting. And so they tested the glue on pig skin, cartilage, arteries, liver tissue, and hearts. They actually tested it on hearts that were covered with blood and inflated with either water or air um, thousands of times over. And so they found that it remained viable when patching up a hole. And so the substance was also able to be expanded up to 14 times its original length without breaking loose when attached to liver tissue. Um, so they attached it to the liver tissue and then pulled, um, and it was able to stretch without breaking. They even applied it to a still beating pig's heart and found that it was around eight times as strong as surgical glue that is commercially available at present. So there is still much research to be done, obviously, but this could be a great new tool for treating both internal and external wounds. So obviously it remains to be seen. There's lots of things that don't make it from the lab to uh, your corner pharmacy, but hopefully uh, this will uh, be a way to make a better kind of adhesive and especially the adhesive, the internal adhesive. So um, there was another bit of the study where they compared the biomimicry adhesive against a commercial adhesive 
for uh, liver lacerations. And they actually found that the biomimicry one didn't leave any kind of scars or any kind of uh, sort of, you couldn't tell that it had been there, but the conventional adhesive in some of the mice models, it actually did leave some scarring. So potentially it's even better than what's out there in that respect as well. All right. It is uh, that time when we should take a break and do some PSAs and some show promos. So hang on for just a minute and then we will come back and we will talk about a giant. Nine Volt Heart is a music program filled with contemporary roots music with heavy doses of new grass and Americana goodness. It comes to you live every Saturday from 3 to 5 p.m. on WXOJ-FM, Valley Free Radio. The focus of the show is current releases in American string music with a large portion of the show dedicated to who's coming to the Pioneer Valley. Expect lots of interviews, in-studio guests, and ticket giveaways. My name is Ed Malachowski. I'm the host of Nine Volt Heart. Tune in every Saturday afternoon for the best in Americana and newgrass music. Hey kids, let mom help with your science project. This new mom wants her kids' science project to thrive. Too bad she hasn't cracked a science book since 1985. A metathesis reaction? Compounds, mixtures, and elements. Even this baking soda volcano is too big of an experiment. Whoa. Now she's completely forgotten the periodic table. Now she's burning a hole through the kitchen table. Burning with science. But her kids' love for the mom is truly transparent. Proof you don't have to be perfect to be the perfect parent. Don't tell Dad. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of siblings in foster care will take you just as you are. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. I Heart J-Rock with DJ Sakura is on Saturday mornings at 12 to 2 a.m. on WXOJ LP 103.3 FM in Northampton. And you can stream us on valleyfreeradio.org. I Heart J-Rock will be playing rock music from Japan, uh, J-Rock, J-Pop, and some VK. Uh, if you like that stuff, give my show a listen, please. And also follow me on Twitter at DJ Sakura 666. Thank you. My name is Ruth Rusi, and this is how I live United. I read to children as part of United Way's education program. It helps them create links between language and literacy and prepares them for a better academic future. I figure I have the time and they have the need. My name is Ruth Rusi. I help kids prepare to succeed in school. So I don't just wear the shirt, I live it. Give, advocate, volunteer, live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. All right, let us get back to talking about science. And so what I wanted to talk about now is a giant. And so this is about an ancient body, uh, specifically one ancient body, that of an ancient Egyptian pharaoh. And so researchers have recently been studying a skeleton found back in 1901 in a tomb near Bait Kalaf in Egypt. 
And so the remains had previously been estimated to belong to someone who lived during the third dynasty around 2700 BC. Now, what makes this skeleton, uh, which may have belonged to the Pharaoh Sa'nakat, unique is that it would have stood around six feet, 1.6 inches tall in life. And now, while that's not terribly tall today, it would have qualified as gigantism in ancient Egypt. And so surveys of ancient Egyptian mummies have suggested that the average height during the period was a mere five foot six inches, notes study co-author Michael Habicht, an Egyptologist at the University of Zurich's Institute of Evolutionary Medicine. And so while pharaohs with access to the best nutrition would have been above average, the tallest known mummified pharaoh, Ramses II, who lived about a thousand years after Sa'nakat, was only five feet nine inches tall. And so Sa'nakat would have towered over him. And so, of course, I'm sure you know that gigantism is a real medical condition. There have been people who have been legitimately giants, and it's usually characterized by an overproduction of growth hormone. And so that is most often caused by a tumor on the pituitary gland of the brain. And so the researchers noted that the skeleton's long bones, such as the femur, showed, quote unquote, exuberant growth which are clear signs of gigantism, according to Habicht. And so that makes the skeleton the oldest example of gigantism yet found. And so part of what makes this interesting and exciting is that studying the evolutionary development of diseases can help today's understanding of those diseases and can help with better, better medical care um, as we continue to learn more about them. And what's even more interesting about this particular skeleton in this particular time is that in early dynasties, shorter people seem to have been more prevalent in royal service, even though the reason for that is not fully understood. Now, despite this, Sanakat was buried in a tomb that was clearly for an elite member of the Egyptian civilization and therefore uh, it's pretty clear that he wasn't shunned for being a giant, even if people were more used to dealing with short people. Um, so that's pretty cool. There's been a lot of amazing discoveries found through uh, Egyptian mummification. Uh, it's really kind of a boon for uh, current scientists that the Egyptians decided to do in uh, embalming in that manner to create mummies. Um, so we found ancient examples of cancer, for instance, um, ancient examples of tuberculosis and all sorts of other things that have been found as we've examined mummies over the years. Um, of course, we have lost a lot of mummies over the years, uh, especially during the Victorian era, uh, era, Freudian slip there, um, where they would do such incredible things as have mummy unwrapping parties, where they would basically unwrap a mummy and take all the trinkets and uh, all of the talismans, I should say, that were in the lining of the mummy 
And then they would often uh, take the mummy and have it powdered and people would uh, ingest it as a medicine. And uh, yeah, they would do all sorts of things. So uh, good thing we don't do that anymore, um, except we do other things. I uh, glanced at a article recently that suggested that some of the military bases that have been uh, created in Syria might actually be covers for uh, looting antiquities in those areas. Obviously, this is simply a rumor at this point. I didn't see that there was any specific evidence to prove it. It was one of those sort of somebody said that they had seen kind of a deals. Um, but if that's true, that would be very upsetting. Um, and I think it's really upsetting the whole issue of um, conflict in the Middle East where there is a lot of sites of very ancient um, provenance. And, you know, obviously, the most important thing is that innocent people are dying um, in really alarming numbers. That is obviously the number one thing to be upset about and to worry about. But also um, the loss of sort of this cultural patrimony that really belongs to the world, uh, since these are sort of fi foundational civilizations, um, is just, it's heartbreaking, um, and yeah. Uh, anyways, <laughs> I keep trying to not be a downer, but you know, it sometimes comes back to that. But let's, let's move on and talk about something that's completely not a downer. Let's talk about adorable small lizards. Uh, so we're going to talk about animals for a little bit and we'll all feel much better. So first is an amazing example of rapid evolution. And before we talk about the actual study, let's just chat a bit about evolution itself, because I think that people often don't realize that evolution can occur, can occur very rapidly, that it can occur without a new species really actually being formed, um, and that survival of the fittest can have a range of meanings. And so a lot of times people think of survival of the fittest as survival of the strongest, um, and things like that. Whereas sometimes it's survival of any number of things that make a animal more adaptive to their environment. Um, and so we talked about hybrids at the top of the hour. Uh, and when I was glancing at the comments under that article, which is an activity that I would never recommend to anyone. Uh, rule zero of the internet is do not read the comments. Um, but I do sometimes anyways. I saw a lot of people suggesting that because animals can have hybrid offspring, then therefore they are not distinct species. Now, while the inability to reproduce together is a pretty standard explanation for speciation, it's not the only criteria. And so one of the huge things that people don't tend to realize about evolution or science in a lot of respects is that it's often not cut and dry. Nature is messy, especially nature is messy, and things don't always have very clearly defined borders. So for instance, if we look back and think about the water bears, where we're not quite sure where they fit in along this spectrum of different animals. And so that doesn't mean that species don't evolve and that they don't eventually become 
different species under different evolutionary pressures. And so, um, speciation is definitely a thing, but speciation is not the end all and be all of evolution. Um, and so there are lots of parts to it. And obviously there's still a lot of stuff that we're not quite sure about. And there's a lot of stuff that's still kind of messy, but that doesn't mean it's not real and happening. So let's talk about those lizards, specifically green anoles. And uh, these anoles were living on the Texas-Mexico border. And they have actually been a rich source of uh, evolutionary changes that have been actually studied. And so anoles that have moved to islands with more trees rather than bushes have developed longer legs. Anoles living in cities have developed stickier feet in order to cling to metal and glass. And um, in addition, another lizard species, it's been reported that recently Brazilian geckos isolated on islands have evolved larger heads in order to eat bigger termites to expand their diet. And so Harvard graduate student Shane Campbell Stanton was interested in the anole's ability to adapt to the cold. And so what he did, he and his team watched five populations of anole, of anolis carolins, carolensis, uh, living at different latitudes. And so he would test their response to temperature by adding them to a chamber, which was gradually cooled. Now, they will eventually lose the ability to right themselves when flipped over as they get too cold. And so this is an easy way to test their cold tolerance without, you know, actually doing any permanent damage to them. And so he found that a group of lizards near Brownsville, Texas, uh, which is close to the southernmost point of the range of this particular um, species that he was studying, became undercoordinated around 11 degrees Celsius while those at the top of the range could tolerate temperatures as low as 6 degrees Celsius. Now, the two groups featured different gene activities, and so that was clearly something that was uh, fueling their difference in temperature uh, toleration. Now, by, by the 2013-14 season, the team was wrapping up field work, but, the winter, but when winter hit with a rather large hammer, so to speak, as the polar vortex swept across the country, uh, they realized that they might have to do a little extra work. The area of Brownsville had a cold snap that lasted for a full month. So Campbell Stanton and his team went back to see how the lizards in that area had fared. He found that the lizards who had survived were now able to tolerate the six degree temperatures that their northern cousins had always been able to endure. And the gene expression had changed to match that of their northern cousins. And so this is a form of evolution that involves epigenetics. Epigenetics, epigenetic changes occur in populations where gene expression is changed due to environmental pressure, pressures. And so what we need to see now is if that cold tolerance will continue to be selected for in this particular population. And if that is the case, it may show that unusual weather events could have a heretofore unknown effect on selection pressures. Now, another interesting animal story concerns the humble snail. Now, snails, snails, 
Um, I've been having a weird issue with pronouncing, pronounce, pronunciating words this week. So I apologize. Snails, while weirdly adorable, can also be a pest. Now, farmers usually employ microscopic parasitic nematode worms to combat them. The nematodes infest the snails and gradually kill them. However, it seems that it is not a one-way battle. It turns out the snails have developed a truly unique defense mechanism. When the nematode worms invade the snail's shell, cells from the inner layer of the shell begin to adhere to the worms, engulfing them and actually encasing them on the interior of the shell. Robbie Ray, a researcher at Liverpool John Moores University, first noticed this in 2015 and has just published his laboratory findings in the journal Scientific Reports. So he took grove snails, common in Europe, and infected them with nematodes. He then watched as the snails went on the offensive. Within a week, the snails had encased six to ten different nematodes, and within a month, between 40 and 90 nematodes. Now, to check on whether this was an unusual mechanism of defense, he collected wild snails from northern Scotland and northwest England. He found encased parasites in hundreds of specimens. He even found examples in museums with some of the shells dating back to over 500 years, which again contained encased nematodes. The shell seems to be a formidable defense system that is able to quickly trap hundreds of nematodes, Ray writes. It is unknown how cells of the shell recognize and attach to the nematode cuticle, but they could respond to lectins, mucins, glycoproteins, or collagens that are present on the nematode surface, coat, and cuticle. This is the only example of an exoskeleton that has been co-opted as an immune system, he said. And so that's another great uh, sort of example of what science can do. We can find out new and exciting things about animals that honestly we would have never thought had new secrets to tell us. And so even the common snail can still hide amazing surprises. Okay. So let's now move on and talk about a subject that is very much of a concern to me, which is allergies. I have allergies. My mother, for instance, is allergic to every environmental allergen that she was tested for uh, years ago. Uh, she actually literally responded to everything. Um, the doctor told her that if you looked at a bag of grass, you'd be allergic to everything. Um, but why we get allergies has always been a bit of a mystery. We know in broad terms that it is an overreaction of the immune system. We even know that the reaction is caused by a group of T cells referred to as Th2 cells. But the problem is, is that there are several varieties of Th2 cells and which ones were the bad ones had proven harder to decipher. And so a new study has found that the specific group of cells that organize allergic reactions, and this could help scientists to develop better means of blocking them. And so T-cell biologist Eric Wambre and immunologist William Kwok of the 
Benaroya Research Institute at Virginia Mason at Virginia Mason in Seattle, Washington, believed they've sorted it out. That's a mouthful. They took blood samples from patients who were sensitive to pollen from alder trees, which is a common allergen. They added fluorescent proteins, which is a researcher's best friend in many cases. Uh, the uh, That is actually a huge scientific breakthrough is when people started being able to use fluorescent dyes and fluorescent proteins to uh, aid their research. That was an incredible breakthrough in science. But anyways, getting back to this, um, they added the proteins to blood samples. And so the proteins were designed to lock into the receptors of the Th2 cells that responded to the alder pollen. So then they were able to look at the various marker proteins on the Th2 cells. Uh, so the different Th2 cells have unique marker proteins. So each kind has its own sort of unique pattern on the outside of the cell. And so they were able to determine the distinct array of protein markers that signaled an allergy-causing Th2 cell, which they have called Th2A cells. They found that these same 2H2 TH2A cells responded to other allergens, and crucially, not only were absent in those without allergies, but the team looked at a group of patients undergoing what's called oral challenge therapy for peanut allergies. And so this is a protocol where uh, patients are gradually given increasing amounts of peanuts uh, to be ingested. And they found that as they increased the amount of peanuts without harm, they decreased the amount of TH2A cells in their system. And they actually found that there was a drop of around 90% in successfully treated patients. Now, there are several pot potential applications for this research, including testing other oral challenge protocols to see if there is a reduction in TH2A cells. And of course, there is the potential that a way to prevent or neutralize TH2A cells could be developed, which could actually cure allergies, which of course I would sign up for any day. Now, as I always like to point out with these stories, uh, this is preliminary research. Uh, so it would be several years before anything available to the public could even hope to be developed. But it is nice to see that there is some uh, breakthroughs coming out of this area because allergies are pretty bad. And in fact, um, I was just watching a video, I think, the other day or reading an article that said that... Um, Hay fever, actually, it was a video um, that hay fever actually affects students' performance. And so it turns out that hay fever will actually reduce uh, student performance on exams uh, by a statistically significant amount. Um, for instance, in England, they had a group of students who did a pretest in a winter in the winter time and then a final test in the summer and uh those with severe allergies actually tended to do worse on the final exam than on the practice exam in the winter and so anything that can help us deal with allergies can would be an overall boon okay 
So let's wrap up tonight with a new study that attempts to scientifically explain some uh, versions of so-called out-of-body experiences, or OBEs. And so these are the kind that people uh, have during their regular lives, not uh, not um, near-death experiences, but during regular everyday uh, lives. And so a new study analyzed 210 patients who had visited their doctors because of problems with their vestibular system, which is more commonly referred to as the inner ear. The inner ear helps provide the body with its sense of balance and spatial orientation. And so when disturbed, it can cause dizziness or a floating sensation. And so Maya Elzier, an ear, nose, and throat specialist at the Hopital European in Marseille, France, and co-author of the study, found that patients with ear trouble ranging from vertigo and tinnitus to ear infections had a 14% rate of -of out-of-body experiences compared to only 5% in the general public. Out-of-body experiences were about three times more frequent in patients with vestibular orders versus those with these disorders, said Christopher Lopez, lead author of the study and a neuroscientist at Aix-Marseille University in France. One patient experienced an OBE while driving his car, for instance. If you are sending the wrong signals to your brain about your motion, it creates confusion. Your brain has to make sense of conflicting information, Lopez told Live Science. We think the conflicting signals create a kind of central incoherence, and that creates distortions in the sense of of your body and the environment around you. And so the researchers found that most patients experienced an OBE only after they had experienced a bout of dizziness. And um, so Lopez was actually inspired to look into this connection after working with another French researcher who showed that he could induce OBEs by electrically stimulating the brain area that integrates vestibular and visual input. Now, the research and other these researchers and others like it um, are creating a better picture of what triggers OBEs and can can reassure patients that while it may be in their heads, it's an actual function of the brain and it's signaling not that they are crazy. Having an out-of-body experience may happen because one of the main sensory systems is not processing correctly. Lopez said, it doesn't mean you're crazy. So yes, very cool. Um, and just as a quick note, uh, before I have to sign off, uh, Nerd Night NoHo is coming up. Um, so you should check it out on, um, the Facebook page. It's going to be weather forecasts. Um, and then the art of mashups and sampling, how to make any two songs work together, which sounds pretty cool and is, uh, probably exciting to people who enjoy radio. Um, but that is all of me for tonight. So have a great evening and stay tuned for civil politics.